Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast so I can afford half-decent music for my episodes. Support your favorite podcast and get a book of your choice. Win-win. It's time to talk about ancient Rome, and there are so many great books on Audible, but I have to recommend Adrian Goldsworthy's Caesar, Portrait of a Colossus. This is a biography of one of my favorite historical figures, Julius Caesar, and how he conquered and fornicated his way around the ancient world, and it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 9 AD, the place, Germany. The Roman legions have crossed the Rhine to conquer the mysterious forests of Germania, but disaster lies ahead. Fear, betrayal, and darkness await the legions in the Teutoburg Forest. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hi, y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 42, Give Me Back My Legions. Today, we are turning back the clock to the Roman Empire and its failure to conquer a strange land called Germania. The climax is the dramatic battle of the Teutoburg Forest, one of the most decisive battles in history. So let's take a trip back to the days of Caesar and Jesus Christ, when most of the world was shrouded in mists, especially the wild barbarian forests of distant Germania. Now, this episode wasn't on my original schedule. I figured it was a pretty well-known piece of history, as far as history goes, and I had other plans. But as someone reminded me recently, what's well-known to me is not necessarily well-known to a general audience. Some of you who do know your ancient military history will probably be like, James, tell me something I don't know. But even if you think you know this story, I bet that you're going to learn something today. Plus, it's the James Hauser version, and I always give you more than just the battle. We're going to talk a little archaeology along the way today, as well as talk about how this battle has shaped history, some of which might surprise you. Without further ado, hear the words of Caesar. This is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources and some maps will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This is a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Have you ever been afraid of the forest? Not the trees in your backyard, but the forest. The deep, remote woods where the shadows and sounds are unfamiliar, where we feel instinctively that something is stalking us. That forest. In Western mythology and popular culture, the forest is a place outside of civilization, chaotic and wild, a source of freedom or a source of danger. Robin Hood, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Grimm's Fairy Tales, Tolkien's Fangorn, Harry Potter's Forbidden Forest, and lots of modern horror movies like Blair Witch Project or Wrong Turn or just dozens of Cabin in the Woods stories all taking place in the forest. 
places of mystical potential, but also fear and horror. And guys, this is a cultural fear. Many cultures regard the forest as spiritual, healing, a place of comfort and protection, but not most of the civilized West. Because deep down, we know that the forest is where the barbarians live. There's been an overarching theme throughout season two of this podcast. We've been using military history all over the world to explore ideas of colonialism and imperialism, usually in the 19th and 20th centuries. But this dichotomy between the colonizers and the colonized, between the cultured and the primitive, is an old dichotomy, one that stretches back to the very foundations of Western culture. Ancient Rome believed in this division between the civilized world and the barbarian world. And we have inherited this belief of us, the good, clean, organized, rational, civilized people, and them, the dirty, savage, uncultured, but dangerous barbarian. You can see this dichotomy throughout Western history. How white settlers viewed the Native Americans, Europeans viewed the Africans, how Americans viewed the Filipinos, how the first world views the third world, how city people and rednecks in modern America view each other. And it all goes back to how the Romans felt when they looked across their borders into the forest. Some civilized people admire the barbarian. They use the barbarian as a foil, a comparison to what they see as a flaw in their own society. Lots of folks still today compare the perceived sins of American culture with the perceived virtues of American Indian culture. And this idea of the noble savage isn't new. Roman writers often compared their own decadent society, as they saw it, with the primitive virtues, as they saw it, of the barbarians. Westerners usually view the barbarian with contempt, sometimes with admiration, but most of all, fear. Nothing curdles the blood of civilized people like barbarians at the gates. A savage, barely human enemy, the barbarian other, the eternal boogeyman of Western culture. The Hun, the Arab, the Mongol, the Afghan, the Comanche, whatever immigrant people are afraid of this week. To this list, we can add the German. Today's story is about one of Rome's most famous encounters with the barbarians. The story of how, at the height of the empire, the legions tried to conquer a land they called Germania. And I bet we'll see a lot of parallels today between ancient imperial wars and modern imperial wars especially when it comes to how the colonizer and the colonized see each other. After all, there is another side of this story, and that's the barbarian side. The people looking out from the forest at the imperial army invading their home. Whether you identify with the people who are afraid of the forest, or the people who live in the forest and hide in the forest, betrays a lot about your cultural background. The civilized versus the barbarian. Because Germania was to Rome what Afghanistan has been to multiple outside powers. The dark, wild forests beyond the Rhine would be Rome's graveyard of empires. Today, we'll be talking about the Roman invasions of Germany from about 12 BC to 16 AD, with the centerpiece, the climax, being the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest. We're going to talk about the Roman Empire and the barbarians to start off before we follow the legions into Germania and find out what awaited them there. We'll see how the fallout lasted well into the modern age, and at the end I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is a nice, pleasant walk through the woods with no danger whatsoever, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, check the mail, make snow angels with your kids, whatever you got to do. 
So strap on your sandals, hold your shield high, and keep your gladius sharp. And keep an eye on the shadows in the forest around you. Let's go on campaign. Roman Empire was one of the greatest civilizations in history. And guys, I think the Romans are awesome. You will never find a bigger bunch of eloquent, narcissistic, brilliant, superstitious, violent lunatics, and I love them for it. They were living their best lawful evil lives. Rome had once been a republic, but by the time of our story, the republic had basically just been destroyed. Fifty years of Roman civil wars reached their climax in 44 BC. A military and political genius named Julius Caesar had defeated all his rivals and just become the new dictator. And then he had the nerve to get himself assassinated. But there was another. Octavian, Caesar's adoptive son and heir, took up his cause. First he defeated Caesar's assassins, Brutus and Cassius. Then in 31 BC he defeated Caesar's only other possible successor, Mark Antony, and his lover Cleopatra of Egypt. After 50 years of political chaos and across the Roman world, one man finally stood victorious. Octavian assumed full military authority over the provinces, known in Latin as Imperium. And on January 16th, 27 BC, the Roman Senate granted him the title of Augustus, which means great or magnificent. This was Augustus Caesar, wielder of Imperium, who we call the first Roman Emperor. Augustus ruled the Roman Empire for 44 years. This was a dude with power. The name Augustus Caesar still vibrates with the sheer weight of that authority. They literally rearranged the calendar for this guy. The months of Quintilus and Sextilis were renamed July and August to commemorate Julius and Augustus Caesar. The very days of our existence still resonate with the power of Augustus. And guys, Augustus' Rome was the classical Rome. The Rome of movies and the Bible and Shakespeare plays. Many of Rome's great monuments took shape during Augustus' reign. He is supposed to have said, I found Rome a city of brick and left it a city of marble. A redecoration and city beautification project so successful, people still go to Rome to see it today. The Roman Empire was honestly an informal arrangement, though. Theoretically, the old republic still existed, like there was still a senate and everything. In practice, it was a military dictatorship held by Augustus, who had ultimate authority over the army, which the senate gave him, of course, willingly. Uh, he didn't call himself a king. Rome didn't have kings. Kings were bad. Julius Caesar had been assassinated because people thought he wanted to be a king. No, Augustus was just the first citizen. The princeps civitatis, the origin of our word prince, and also why we call this era of Roman history, historians call it, the principate. Augustus exercised his authority over a vast domain. His word held sway across France and Spain, Italy and Greece and the Balkans, North Africa and Egypt, modern Turkey and Syria and Palestine. 
Roman law governed the Mediterranean from end to end, from the Atlantic to the Euphrates, from the English Channel to the sands of Arabia. Now, a lot of these areas were ruled indirectly. Rome had some kind of deal with a local leader and ruled through him. This is why Judea was ruled by King Herod during the time of Jesus, even though Rome was really in charge, like the puppet master. Rome just wanted you to pay your taxes. That was all. You could even keep worshipping your gods, as long as you also worshipped the emperor who was a deity. Nice temple you got there. Look at all those gods. Tell you what, we're just going to put another shrine right here to Caesar Augustus next to all the rest of them. You got so many gods, what's one more? Roman culture seeped into every aspect of their empire. Local elites ended up adopting Roman clothes and manners, and sent their children to be educated in Rome. Rome built roads for their military and trade, aqueducts for fresh water, coliseums and racetracks for entertainment, and all of a sudden a random city in Turkey looks pretty freaking Roman. They would build cities from scratch, like just plop a good old Latin street plan in the middle of Serbia or wherever. Places like Vienna or London are remnants of this, visible markers of Caesar's power. Romanization wasn't intentional, like European imperialism in the 19th century. They, were, they didn't push their culture exactly, but it was a byproduct of the empire. The culture and material wealth and power were all attractive. Many of their subjects, even if they didn't like Roman rule, even if they resisted Roman rule, had to acknowledge the appeal of all this material benefit. The empire had enormous material benefits for the conquered. Cue Monty Python, what have the Romans ever done for us, besides roads and sanitation and clean water and law and order, etc. But of course, that's looking at it from the point of view of the civilized. After all, empire exists to benefit the rulers, not the ruled. The material benefits of Roman rule were the byproduct of an empire that imposed heavy taxes, ran a very lucrative slave trade, and eradicated cultural minorities through violence or the sheer weight of institutional power. Some people rejected the material wealth, the cultural chauvinism, the arrogance of Caesar's authority. And when they resisted, the veneer of civilization peeled away very quickly to reveal the steel of force. Rome might have been different from earlier or later empires, but like the Persians, or the Mongols, or the British, or the Russians, they enforced their empire through shocking, brutal violence. And the agents of this violence were the legions. No picture of the Roman Empire is complete without the legion. The original Roman army had been a citizen militia, honestly closer to something from the Greek city-states like Athens and Sparta than anything we recognize as the legion. But as Rome's borders expanded and its enemies grew more dangerous, the weakened warriors that had fought Pyrrhus and Hannibal were no longer enough. This was one of the things that killed the Republic. The demands of foreign warfare and the strains these demands imposed on the Republican system were a major force in the rise of the Empire. By the time of Augustus, the old militia system was gone. In its place were the legions, one of the world's first truly professional armies. Augustus's army at its peak contained 28 legions. The legion was a self-sufficient force of around 5,000 men, about the size of a modern brigade, organized into battalions called cohorts. And these guys were heavy infantry. The legionary of the Principate was a heavily armored infantryman. He wore chainmail and a bowl-shaped chin-guarded helmet, and he carried a large rectangular shield called a scutum. 
There were other kinds of armor like the famous Lorica Segmentata, which is like the costume armor that we see in lots of plays, you know. If you have an Easter play, a passion play, whoever's playing the Roman Centurion in that play is probably dressed in what was supposed to be the Lorica Segmentata. But the Lorica Segmentata barely existed by this time period, it was still very new. So most Roman legionaries were still dressed in chainmail, and the chainmail worked. The legionaries' weapons were a set of javelins, which could be used for throwing or for thrusting, and a short double-edged sword about two feet long called the gladius. The heavy armor and shield and short sword combo, that is the Roman legionary. But heavy infantry alone do not an army make. The Romans also had a formidable siege train, lots of catapults and ballistas for capturing cities or for attacking enemies out in the open. But the Romans also recruited soldiers from the provinces. These guys were called the Auxilia. These guys usually functioned as light infantry, spearmen, cavalry. The stuff that Rome didn't do quite as well as other people, they hired other people to do. Most Roman armies had as many Auxilia as they did regular heavy legionaries. The Auxilia were led by Roman officers, held to the same standards as the legionaries, and fought alongside them. These guys were not like the second string, these were necessary components of any Roman army. The Auxilia were Rome's colonial soldiers, the equivalent of Britain's Indian soldiers, the German Ascaris, or America's Filipino soldiers. But unlike most European colonial armies from the modern age, the Auxilia gained the coveted prize of Roman citizenship when they finished their terms of service. It was an excellent way of integrating foreign peoples into the Roman system. These auxilia would usually retire in these provinces, and they'd raise families in the Roman way, in a Roman village, living on Roman money. They, they, they were just, they were spreading this Roman culture by way of the legions throughout all the provinces. The legions were a professional, long-service, volunteer army, much more like modern armies than almost anything else in the ancient world. The smallest unit was the Contiburnium, a squad of eight men who ate, slept, and fought together. Pay was decent, and the legionary could expect a large pension at the end of his 20 years of service. They worked hard and partied hard, and garrison towns sprung up around any major legionary camp. Modern cities like Cologne in Germany, or Barcelona in Spain, originated as Roman garrison towns, full of bars and strip joints and pawn shops. Heck, there might be hope for Fayetteville, North Carolina after all. There are lots of similarities between the Roman Legion and the modern US military, similarities I have noticed many times. But there were also differences. The Romans exercised remarkably harsh discipline, including stuff like decimation, the execution of one out of every ten men in a unit that fled the battlefield. The Romans were also extremely religious and superstitious to a level that would shock modern audiences. Many superstitions revolved around the aquila, the eagle, the legionary standard. The silver or bronze eagle which the emperor issued to each legion was that legion's sacred emblem. To lose it was a disgrace worse than death. There were lots of customs and traditions and rituals that were performed with the aquila. Roman legionaries also saw omens and portents in the behavior of animals or in the weather, and they treated them very seriously. In battle, the Roman legion was a brutal, efficient fighting machine, well-oiled. This, this was the preeminent army of the ancient world. It was an organized human lawnmower. 
In the open field, in a conventional formation battle, the Legion deployed disciplined violence on a level I don't think would be matched until the invention of gunpowder. If the first volley of javelins didn't do the trick, the legionaries charged right into melee combat, bashing with their shields and gutting their enemies with the gladius. The Roman legion was terrifying in action. A stunning whirlwind of blood and steel, many enemies just ran away. The Jewish historian Josephus, who witnessed the legions that crushed the Jewish revolt of the 70s AD, described them this way. It would not be far from the truth to call their drills bloodless battles, and their battles bloody drills. The legions had conquered most of the known world. In a conventional battle, they were nearly invincible. In a conventional battle. The legions had fought many enemies. Spaniards, Africans, Greeks, Persians, Egyptians. But none terrified Rome more than the wild peoples of the north. The barbarians. What is a barbarian? It is worth digging into this concept because the idea of the barbarian is such a common theme in Western cultural memory. The term barbarian is Greek. It was a term the Greeks used for anyone who wasn't them. The Greeks thought that every other language besides Greek just sounded like gibberish, like they were just saying bar, 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 like the teacher in Charlie Brown or something. So they called these people barbarians. Barbarians. It sounds like a really stupid origin story, but that's that's the truth. That's what that's where it came from. The word is eventually transitioned from the simple definition of doesn't speak Greek to mean a certain way of life and culture that contrasted with the civilized way that the Greeks and the Romans lived. And that's another word. Civilized. This derives from the Latin word civis, or civitas, which are supposed to be pronounced kiwis or kiwitas, but no one pronounces them that way. No one pronounces Latin like it's supposed to be pronounced. They pronounce the modern version. But anyway, civis or civitas. So that translates into other words like city, citizen, civic, civil. Overarching theme here is organized people living in cities. That is what the idea of civilization is. People whose culture and society revolve around large, complex organizations centered on large settlements the Romans called cities. The Greeks identified themselves as civilized, and the Romans who imitated the Greeks inherited this idea. We are civilized. Those other people, people who lived in tribal communities without roads or a written language or proper clothing or manners or cities, they were the barbarians. A good representation of how Greeks and Romans viewed the barbarian comes from a statue. This is the statue called the Dying Gaul, which celebrated the Greek victory over the Celts around 220 BC. The statue portrays a proud warrior slumped over on his shield, his weapons scattered as he bleeds out from a sword wound. Shaggy hair marks him out as a Celt, a barbarian, unlike the clean-shaven civilized people of that time period. The statue serves as a reminder of the enemy's strength, his courage, and his ultimate defeat. Kinda like how white Americans viewed the American Indians, the civilized admire the barbarians, even as they crush them. But they also fear them. To the Romans, the dreaded barbarians of their history were a people called the Gauls, or the Celts. Very early in Rome's history, in 387 BC, 
a Gallic king named Brennus, had captured and plundered Rome, leaving it broken and humiliated. This led to a deep-set, centuries-old, panicky, dripping fear of the Gauls. They were big, larger on average than the small Italians, with lots of wild facial hair. They'd charge into battle with long swords screaming crazy war cries, often with painted faces and tattoos. Something about the northern barbarians, especially the Celts, just spooked the Romans. And Julius Caesar played on these fears when he led the legions in his invasion of Gaul, which is roughly modern-day France and Belgium. After ten years of brilliant and ruthless campaigns, some of the most famous campaigns in history, Caesar conquered this vast territory for Rome, cementing his military reputation in the process. Caesar justified these wars by invoking the terror of the barbarian, the Other, Rome's mortal danger now and forever. Augustus Caesar, the heir of Julius Caesar, expanded Rome's frontiers even farther, conquering the Alps and pushing into other Celtic territories, like modern Switzerland, Austria, and Hungary. By 16 BC, Rome had established defensible borders along Europe's two great rivers, the Rhine and the Danube, and they had overrun most of Celtic Europe in the process. The reason the Celts aren't the dominant culture of Northern Europe anymore it's because the Romans took care of them. <laughs> the Celtic threat was finally ended forever. But beyond these newly conquered regions, beyond the Rhine and the Danube, lay a new wilderness. A vast mysterious force that the Romans called Germania. Germania, which I will keep calling Germania throughout this episode to distinguish it from the modern country Germany, is like Africa or America or the Philippines an artificial unity imposed from the outside on a natural diversity. The Germans of the first century AD did not call themselves Germans. That was a name the Romans gave them. Germania, as the Romans understood it, included a huge area beyond the Rhine, encompassing not just modern Germany, but Scandinavia, the Czech Republic, Poland, all of that on that other side of the river, that's Germania. A geographic description, not a unified people. But there were people there. And one of our main sources for these people, heck, our only source for lots of this episode, is a Roman historian named Tacitus. Around 98 AD, Tacitus wrote an ethnographic work called Germania, which describes these people and how they lived. And Tacitus was one of those guys who admired the barbarians a little bit, who thought they had a lot of virtues that the Romans had lost in their decadent laziness. So he was actually a little bit more impartial and a little bit kinder to the barbarians than most Roman writers. And get this, guys. Tacitus's Germania was almost lost forever until someone found a single manuscript in a German abbey in 1425. This is the only copy we've ever found. If someone had used it for, like, wrapping paper, it would have been gone forever. We'll get back to these sources near the end of this episode, but seriously, we are very lucky we know anything about Germany in the first century AD. The Germans of this age were perfect fits for the Roman idea of the barbarian. Tacitus describes the Germanic peoples as big, blue-eyed, and red-headed, with long flowing hair and beards rather than the close-cropped, clean-shaven Roman style. They lived in very small villages of like 20 families or less, with no overarching political structure beyond the very loose association of the tribe. 
Their methods of government were fairly egalitarian, with war chiefs leading through influence rather than any set laws. The assembly usually made decisions for the whole tribe and elected their leaders. The Germans had no written language, but plenty of oral traditions. They weren't cavemen. <laughs> they had fields and farms and blacksmiths and villages, and they conducted trade with each other and with the civilized peoples. But they did not really share a common identity. Diversity is natural. The peoples that the Romans called Germans were really members of a tribe, like the Batavi, the Brukteri, the Cherusci, the Marcomanni. These tribes were not established units. They fluctuated in size and location. If you didn't like this tribe, you ran off and joined another tribe. They were local groupings that constantly warred among themselves and did not consider themselves part of a single nation. Tacitus tells us that the Germans worshipped a pantheon of gods that included Mars, Mercury, and Jupiter, which would have been a surprise to these people. This was Tacitus' interpretation of the gods Tyr, Wotan, and Thor. The war god Tyr, the messenger god Wotan, or Odin, and the lightning god Thor. They're a bit different in Germanic mythology than in Norse mythology, but guess what? We have more calendar fun! Because the Germanic gods Tyr, Wotan, and Thor were brought to England by the Anglo-Saxons, where they gave their names to Tyr's Day, Wotan's Day, and Thor's Day, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Y'all are going to dominate the next trivia night, I tell you. Tacitus says that the Germans were fierce but undisciplined warriors with natural fighting skills but little training. The German was a light mobile fighter, not a heavy stand-your-ground professional like the legionary. We know from archaeology and other Roman sources that the Germanic warrior rarely wore armor. He fought alongside his comrades with a shield and long spear, which could be thrown or wielded in melee. The war chiefs might have a bit of armor and they might carry swords, but they were the exception. Tacitus also says that German women often accompanied their men to battle and encouraged them from the sidelines like there's a peanut gallery of women off behind the German warriors yelling at their men. Your wife is following you to battle, boys. Don't embarrass her. You'll never hear the end of it. What do you mean you're scared? Get back out there or you're sleeping on the couch. The Germans might have been fragmented, primitive, undeveloped, but to the Romans, they were a menace, a threat, the danger lurking in the woods. The Romans' first encounter with the Germans came in the 110s BC, when a large tribal migration came boiling south towards Italy. These were the Cimbri and the Teutons, an alarmingly large bunch of barbarians headed right towards the homeland. The Romans panicked when the Germans chewed through not one, not two, but three full-strength Roman armies. The Roman defeat at Arausio in 105 BC was one of the worst in its history. A huge number of Romans were killed. Rome was on the verge of just, like, outright melting down before a brilliant general named Gaius Marius finally defeated the Germanic invasions in several bloody battles. Incidentally, this was part of the chain of events that led to the fall of the Republic, because Marius reformed the Roman army to defeat the barbarians, but this led to a bunch of chaos back in Rome. Long story. Point is, Rome had tons of reasons to be afraid of the Germans. Destroying three Roman armies and giving all of Italy a panic attack is a heck of a first impression. But the old days, when the Gauls could sack Rome, when the Germans could hammer at the gates of Italy, those seemed like they were in the past. 
Rome under Augustus Caesar was at its peak. Its authority and might were unmatched, its arm armies invincible, and its power seemed limitless. Surely they had no reason to be scared of the barbarians anymore. I want to drive this home. Rome was riding high in almost four centuries of non-stop victory. They were the military superpower of the ancient world. When they did suffer a defeat, it just pissed them off. They would come back with an army three times bigger and ten times meaner, and you'd be sorry. This was the legendary empire with the legendary legions, the apex of classical civilization. But sometimes when you reach a peak, you get cocky. You get careless. You develop hubris. And you overreach. In 16 BC, 11 years into Augustus's reign as emperor, a raiding party of German warriors crossed the Rhine into Roman territory. They ambushed the Roman 5th Legion under the command of Marcus Lollius. The Germans didn't just defeat the 5th Legion, they captured its eagle. The Romans recovered from this defeat, Lollius retaliated against the Germans and maybe recovered the eagle, the sources aren't quite sure. This was really little more than a skirmish. But to Augustus, the Clades Loliana, or the Lolian disaster, was an excuse to do something he was already planning to do. Follow in the footsteps of Julius Caesar and subdue the barbarians of the north. That same year, 16 BC, Augustus Caesar came to Gaul, modern-day France, on a personal visit to supervise its reorganization into Roman provinces. But he was also laying the foundations for the empire's next big project, the invasion of Germania. Augustus concentrated his legions on the Rhine and started planning. It was time to cross into that deep, dark forest and subdue the barbarians that had haunted Rome for centuries. More glory, more prestige, more brilliant victories awaited the legions of Augustus Caesar. But underestimating the simple barbarians of Germania would be a mistake. A mistake that countless empires have made time and again. They allow their feelings of cultural and military superiority, of the feeling that we the civilized will always triumph over the barbarian. They allow that to blind them to reality. They lose sight of their own limitations. The contempt for the unwashed, uncivilized barbarian wouldn't just lead the Romans to defeat, it would lead them to disaster. When Augustus Caesar decided to invade Germania, the machinery of empire swung into action. Augustus ordered six legions to redeploy along the Rhine River, along with all their supporting auxilia units, so probably around 60,000 men. This was a massive force for the ancient world, and it was hundreds of miles from Rome, and it required tons of food, clothing, weapons, and equipment, especially if Rome wanted to somehow drag a bunch of freaking siege engines through the forest. Augustus established a whole new mint at Lugdunum, modern Lyon, to forge bullion into the coins to pay his legions. Rome's war machine was a logistical and financial masterclass, and Augustus was one of its main architects. Augustus even made sure the propaganda was ready. 
You can't launch an imperial war without decent propaganda. One of his court poets, a Greek named Prenagoras, wrote verses describing the Lollian disaster, the ambush of the 5th Legion, to justify the invasion of Germania. The Roman warrior, by the Rhine's wide strands, prostrated from his wounds half-slain, saw his beloved eagle and barbarian hands, and rose up as if brought to life again, and slew the man who'd held it in those lands, and died but earned himself undying fame. Germania was seen as the next inevitable step in Rome's imperial expansion. In the long run, Rome had never failed to conquer any lands it wanted to conquer. All the barbarians had fallen before their might. It wasn't if Rome conquered Germania, but when. To command the invasion, Augustus looked to his own family. Augustus kept a very tight grip on the reins of power, so whenever he assigned a top general or the governor of a major province, he generally recruited from his immediate family people he could trust. The Roman Empire ran on nepotism. This is not the place to go into Augustus's big screwed up clan, though it was really screwed up. The Julio-Claudian dynasty was a soap opera. Sometimes literally, there was a, there was a great historical drama made in the 1970s called I, Claudius about the Julio-Claudian dynasty. It was just a freaking mess all around. Augustus only had one biological child, his daughter Julia, who was so wild and rebellious, allegedly, that he exiled her from Rome. Long story. But Augustus adopted his two stepsons from his marriage to the Empress Livia Drusilla. These were the guys who were going to carry on the Julio-Claudian dynasty into the future. They were Nero Claudius Drusus, usually just called Drusus, and Tiberius Claudius Nero, usually just called Tiberius, the future emperor Tiberius. Drusus and Tiberius would lead the invasions of Germania. In 13 BC, Augustus returned to Rome, leaving the 25-year-old Drusus in charge in Gaul, including the Rhine River border with Germania. Despite his age, Drusus was an experienced commander and was very popular with the army. With all the preparations in place, six legions and their auxilia under his command, and the favor of gods and emperors, he was prepared to conquer the lands beyond the Rhine. Drusus led four great campaigns into Germania, each year from 12 to 9 BC. These were deep lunges into nearly unmapped wilderness. The legions embarked on lightning raids, marching deep into the woods, drums beating and eagles flashing, heavy sandals stumbling over roots and splashing through cold streams. Drusus forged alliances with some tribes and defeated others in battle the legion's swords and arrows and javelins, throwing the savage barbarians back. He built a major canal connecting the Rhine River to the North Sea, allowing the legions to launch amphibious assaults along the coast. But the volatile weather of the North Sea was almost more dangerous than the Germans. In 12 BC, a major storm almost destroyed one of Drusus's invasions. The Romans had another near miss in 11 BC. After several months along the Weser River, deep in enemy territory, Drusus decided to march back to the Rhine. But on the way back, a tribe called the Cherusci counterattacked the Roman invaders. This is what the historian Cassius Dio says. The enemy ambushed him frequently and once trapped him in a narrow pass and all but destroyed his army. The Germans would have wiped them out had they not underestimated the Romans, as if they were already captured and needed only the coup de grace. 
This was a very narrow escape for the legions, with only the leadership of Drusus and the discipline of the soldiers averting a total disaster. Drusus failed to achieve a decisive victory in 11 BC or 10 BC. The German tribes avoided battle and hid out in the forests. But 9 BC was the good year. Drusus won a series of victories against many tribes, including the Chadi, Cheruski, Marcomanni, and the Segumbri. He forced them to sign treaties of submission and turn over hostages. Drusus led the legions all the way to the Elba River, farther than any Roman had ever dared. He even set up a monument to commemorate this achievement, possibly somewhere around Magdeburg or Dresden in modern Germany. But allegedly, allegedly, something happened to the handsome Roman prince while he was on the Elba. The historian Cassius Dio describes a woman of superhuman size, the personification of Germania, confronting the Roman conqueror. Where are you hurrying to, insatiable Drusus? You are not fated to look upon all these lands. Leave. The end of your campaigns and of your life is already at hand. This story sounds like it probably wasn't true. Cassius Dio often just kind of makes stuff up. It's hard to trust him sometimes. But if it was true, she was right. Several days later, Drusus fell off his horse and broke his leg. The injury festered, and the romantic young commander died on the way back to the Rhine. He was 29 years old. Very common in those days. You'd be surprised how many important people died from a fall off their horse. The Roman Empire mourned the valiant young conqueror. The Senate awarded Drusus the posthumous title of Germanicus, a name he passed on to his son. His legionaries erected a cenotaph to their beloved leader near the town of Mainz along the Rhine. The remnants of this monument, the Drususstein, can still be seen today. Drusus's victories were acclaimed as great conquests, noble deeds worthy of Augustus's family and the glory of the legions. But he had actually accomplished very little. He had basically tramped back and forth across the country, winning battles but not really conquering anything, and he had barely averted disaster several times, like in the storm or the ambush. The really big problem for Rome was that there were no real objectives in Germania. There were no cities to capture, which was how Rome had conquered everyone else. The barbarians don't have cities, yeah, but that removes your main objective in any major invasion. You could force the tribes to swear fealty to you, which they kept doing over and over, but those tribes kept breaking their promises the moment you turned your back. That's why the Romans would be constantly going to the same tribes over and over and subduing them and forcing them to submit, this year and the next year and the next year. Alliances were often temporary, since the war chiefs were subject to the changing opinion of their people. If the people decided they weren't going to listen to their king anymore, they just didn't. One tribe, the Marcomanni, decided to just leave. Under their leader, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this, a leader named Marobodulus, he led a large coalition of German tribesmen away from Rome's reach and founded a new power base in a land called Hercynia, which is modern Bohemia or the Czech Republic. Marobodulus became Rome's new public enemy number one, a dangerous enemy and a target for future invasions. The German campaign now passed to Drusus' older brother Tiberius, who was a better general on several levels. Tiberius' campaigns of 8 BC and 7 BC were apparently pretty successful, though we don't know much about them, the sources are pretty quiet. But after this, those same Roman sources described Germania as essentially conquered. 
The tribes had been forced into submission. They'd all signed treaties with Rome, and their children had been sent to be educated in Rome. There were Roman garrisons all over the country. Roman merchants were starting to sell their goods, and new Roman colonies were being planned along the Vesar and the Lippa. Rome had a one-size-fits-all program for newly conquered territories. Subvert the local elites, have their kids educated in Rome, bring in trade and commerce, start building roads and towns, plop a couple Roman colonies in the area, let it simmer for a couple decades, uh, boom, Roman province. And this program had a great track record. It had worked in Africa and the Balkans and Gaul and Spain and Syria. Why wouldn't it work in Germania? Germania basically vanishes from the Roman sources for about 10 years after this. Like, the Romans just didn't have much to say, which probably means there wasn't much to say. We know Tiberius went back in around 4 AD to put down a minor uprising. He was apparently able to march from the Rhine to the Elba with no serious trouble. By all accounts, Germania was well on its way to becoming just another province. But this is where we need to stop for a second. We need to step away from what the sources say and read between the lines. The campaigns of Drusus and Tiberius look very impressive on paper. They probably looked very impressive back in Rome. Red arrows on a map marching back and forth little crosses where they won major battles. Lots of tribes had submitted to Rome. The list was impressive. But what did Rome actually control? How long was the conquest going to last if the legions went somewhere else? How long would the tribes stay loyal if Rome's control slackened? The test of your authority isn't how your subordinates behave when they think you're strong. It's how they behave when they think you're weak. The Roman Empire had gotten complacent. They were so used to being invincible, so high in their own supply, that they couldn't see what was right in front of them. There were very many people in the supposedly conquered Germania who would skin the Romans alive if they ever got the chance. Granted, we have to remember, no people are a monolith. Many tribes didn't need to be forced to ally with Rome. They did it willingly. Even the usually hostile tribes had pro- and anti-Roman factions. We see this throughout the history of imperialism. There are always folks who see benefits to working with the imperial power. And we shouldn't look at this as betrayal or treason or something. This was often just the rational choice. As we've seen, Rome did bring material benefits along with its empire. For instance, one of the tribes that Rome had been fighting from the beginning were the Cherusci. The Cherusci nobility, which had something like a ruling family, was divided into various factions, some of which believed in defiance, others believed in cooperation with Rome. When Tiberius defeated the Cherusci again, like this like the 10th time, in the year 5 AD, the pro-Roman faction took power, and the Cherusci, bitterest of all Roman enemies, came over to the empire. So with Germania apparently subdued, Augustus could turn his attention to King Maraboduus, who was growing stronger every day. Augustus ordered Tiberius to gather up a massive army along the Danube, near modern-day Budapest, and launch an invasion against Maraboduus' realm, basically an invasion north from the area of Austria and Hungary into the Czech Republic. But in 6 AD, five days before Tiberius was set to launch his invasion, all hell broke loose in the Balkans. The recently conquered provinces of Pannonia and Dalmatia, modern-day Hungary and Croatia and Serbia, were not so conquered after all. Roman taxes had been bad enough, but military conscription for Tiberius' new campaign had been the last straw. 
so when the legions concentrated on the Danube, the locals seized their chance. The Pannonian Revolt took the Empire completely by surprise. It was one of the greatest challenges they had ever faced. The Romans took three years and eventually 15 legions to crush the rebellion. This required reinforcements from multiple provinces, including Germania. Eight of the 11 legions beyond the Rhine in the new province of Germania went to deal with the rebellion, leaving only three behind, the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions. Rome was stretched too thin. There weren't enough legions to be everywhere at once. It had conquered too much territory too quickly, like a kid with his mouth too full of food to swallow it. This, the euphoria of the empire's strength and power and authority had led them to push way beyond what they could control within a certain period of time. And with all Rome's attention on crushing the Pannonian Revolt, Germania was low on the priority list. After all, it was basically pacified. Never mind that Pannonia and Dalmatia had been pacified too. Until they weren't. The good news was that Augustus had a reliable, experienced governor handling the situation in Germania. His name was Publius Quinctilius Varus. Publius Quinctilius Varus was in his mid-fifties when he assumed command in Germania, and he seemed like the perfect man for the job. He had been Augustus's personal secretary during his tour in Gaul, and he had commanded a legion during Tiberius's conquest of the Alps. Varus had served as governor of Africa and of Syria, and apparently he did very, very well in these jobs. He may or may not have been the governor of Syria when an event of, of course, no future importance went down under his domain. Oh, I don't know. Some Jewish woman named Miriam gave birth to a kid named Yeshua, maybe in a manger in Bethlehem. Dates in this time period are fuzzy, but for some reason, we stop counting years backwards and start counting them forwards around this point. Which is, of course, totally unrelated to the birth of a random Jewish kid that no one knew about at the time. I'm sure, I'm sure they were totally unrelated. Anyway, Varus capped off his career by getting married to the emperor's grandniece and thus becoming an official part of the imperial family. So Augustus decided that Publius Quinctilius Varus, an experienced military commander, a civil governor with a stellar reputation, and now part of his family, was the perfect pick to govern Germania. And I mean, yeah. His resume was solid, he was experienced, he'd never failed in any of his jobs, he was the best candidate. Now, most accounts of this campaign will blame Varus for what was about to happen. Lots of historians describe Varus as a bumbling incompetent, and I think taking this approach would be very easy. You know me, I am never shy to call out idiots in this podcast, but I'm going to go against the grain of a lot of historical opinion. I don't think Varus was an idiot. I think he was a perfectly competent, reasonable Roman commander. I just don't think it's that simple. Nothing that Varus did before Germania indicates that he was incompetent. If he was complacent, so was everyone else. The whole Roman Empire, from Augustus on down, regarded Germania as subdued. If Germania was still dangerous, why did Varus only have three legions when there had been eleven there only a few years ago? No. Varus's failure can't be seen in the vacuum. The whole Roman authority chain of command was to blame for their complacency in Germania. Varus assumed the German command in the year 7 AD, and he had two major objectives. First, to keep the peace within his province, 
And he seems to have done a good job of this at first. Second, start introducing Roman law, including Roman taxes. This was heavy administrative work and involved meeting with a lot of local leaders, holding court, auditing accounts, etc. This was all part of the Roman playbook. Varus was on track. Soon they would start building Roman roads, constructing Roman cities, growing the roots of Roman rule that always followed military conquest. Varus was following the program to the letter. He was doing exactly what he was supposed to do. And to do this, Varus needed people he could trust, people who understood the Germans. Luckily, he had the perfect guy, a German noble who had been educated in Rome, served with the Roman legions, spoke excellent Latin, and belonged to the pro-Roman faction of the Cheruski tribe. Varus saw no reason whatsoever not to trust Arminius. We do not know much about Arminius. Most of what people know about him or think they know is guesswork. This is ancient history, y'all. There's only like two or three sources for anything. They don't agree and some of them are probably lying. So I'm going to be saying probably a lot when I tell you about this guy. Arminius was probably born around 18 BC, putting him in his mid-twenties at the time of our story. His father was Segamer, their leading noble, something like a king of the Cheruski tribe, whose homelands were near the modern German city of Minden. Arminius was probably around eight or nine when his father gave him up as a hostage during the campaigns of Tiberius, and he was sent to Rome to be educated, like any child of a local elite being integrated into the Roman Empire. So Arminius spent his teenage years in Rome receiving a full upper-class Roman education. He learned how to dress like a Roman, how to think and speak like a Roman, how the Romans acted and behaved. He saw Rome and its civilization at its glorious height, a city of a million people with all the attractions of a city and all this culture and all these riches, the bustling epicenter of the ancient world's greatest empire. Arminius wasn't just brought up in Rome, educated and refined until he was more Roman than the Romans. He was raised to the Roman lower nobility, called the Equestrian Order, and given full Roman citizenship. He went on to serve in the legions as an officer in the Auxiliary Cavalry. Arminius served under Tiberius in the Pannonian Revolt, and by all accounts he was a brave and competent young officer, a rising star in the legions. That all is what we know. But there is a major piece of the puzzle missing. Because this Germanic prince who had been educated in Rome, given Roman citizenship and nobility, had fought in the Roman legions against the barbarians, had sworn oaths to the Roman emperor, hated Rome. He despised it. This guy is smiling and nodding and wearing the legion uniform and doing the Roman salute and speaking perfect Latin and drinking with his buddies. And that entire time, behind that smiling face, he was seething. He was grinding his teeth when he saw Tiberius ride by, remembering how the emperor's stepson had invaded his home and burned their villages and stolen him from their father and imposed the Roman yoke on his people. He was civilized on the outside, but all barbarian on the inside. It is frustrating that we know so little about Arminius because he is one of the most fascinating people of the ancient era. I mean, when we talk about the glory of Rome, all these material benefits, all this wealth and power and authority, this is a guy who was brought in from the barbarian lands and given all of it, made part of it. 
He would have seen Rome becoming a city of marble. He would have seen the roads and the aqueducts and the money and the plays and the poetry and the manufactured goods that Rome could offer his people. He served in the legions. He would have known their deadly efficiency, their drills and their tactics, seen them in action over and over, and yet, and yet, he saw all this power and wealth and culture and authority and civilization, and he rejected it. When Roman sources talk about Arminius, there's always a note of betrayal and treason, which I get, but there's also disbelief. How could someone who was given all the benefits of our obviously superior civilization, who had such a privileged and prestigious position in that civilization, how could he reject it? This is a question that would-be conquerors ask themselves time and again. How could the Afghans reject British civilization and later on Soviet communism? How could the Nez Perce and the Apache and the Filipinos reject American prosperity? How could the Iraqis reject Western values? Why do the barbarians keep rejecting civilization? Don't they see how much we have to offer them? Don't they see that it's better? The puzzle Arminius posed to the Romans endures to the modern day. How did someone who was given everything Rome had to offer turn his back on civilization for barbarism? How did he reject the clearly superior way for the worst way? Was he stupid? Arminius definitely wasn't stupid because he was paying attention. When Drusus was almost destroyed in the German ambush in 11 BC, Arminius was watching. When Rome's leaders were clearly ignorant about Germania, didn't understand the situation in there, and were blind to their own lack of knowledge, Arminius was listening. When the legions struggled to subdue the Pannonian Revolt, when the local tribes cut up a Roman legion in bad terrain and inflicted heavy casualties, Arminius was taking notes. And then, in the year 7 AD, Arminius came home, a fully Romanized German on the outside, a local patriot committed to defeating his oppressors on the inside. He had a unique perspective on his country's conquerors. He hadn't fought against them. He had fought for them, helped plan and lead major operations, and he had learned that the Roman legion was not invincible. Catch it by surprise, in unfavorable terrain where it couldn't deploy, when its leaders were complacent and weren't paying attention. Arminius returned to Germania to take up his position as a German prince and serve as the liaison between his own people, the Cherusci, and the new Roman governor. Publius Quinctilius Verus was probably glad to have this experienced Romanized German at his side, a fellow army vet keeping him informed on the local people. Verus knew he could trust Arminius. After all, he was more Roman than the Romans. But behind Varus's back, Arminius was holding secret meetings, making quiet arrangements, watching, and waiting. Soon he would have his chance, and then Rome would find out the hard way just how well they had taught him. The Roman Empire was at the peak of its power. It believed that its legions were invincible, its civilization was irresistible, that its borders would expand forever, that the barbarians in the end would always bow to the civilized. They would continue believing that, even as Arminius led them into the forest.
ancient history can be frustrating because it's really hard to know anything for sure. You may have picked up on the fact that in this episode, I use words like probably, might have, or likely a lot more than in my other episodes. We have to read between the lines a lot more. That's because what we know about the Roman invasions of Germania is based on a handful of written sources, which are incomplete, vague, and sometimes disagree with each other. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest is one of history's most decisive battles, and compared to like Gettysburg or D-Day or even Thermopylae, we know very little about it. I'm going to keep calling it the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest, but there may not have actually been a Teutoburg Forest at all. Like, we know this battle happened. Multiple Roman historians reference the Varus disaster, the Claudes Veriana, but very few of them give us a lot of details. Tacitus described it in Germania and the Annals, and he is a very reliable source, but he never addresses the battle directly, always, oh yeah, that thing that happened back in 9 AD. He probably did address it in some other chapter of the Annals, but we only have part of the Annals, that chapter's lost forever. Cassius Dio gives us a detailed account of the battle, a suspiciously detailed account because Cassius Dio liked to write a bunch of fan fiction, and he was also writing much later, and a lot of this was later disproven. We do have an account written by Velius Paterculus, who apparently knew both Arminius and Varus personally, but he wasn't at the battle, and his work is full of overt bias. He really hates Varus. There was this work by Pliny the Elder called The German Wars, which seems like it would be perfect, <laughs> except that no copy of this work survives. And none of these guys can tell us exactly where the battle took place. Tacitus gave us a location, what he calls the Saltu Teutoburgiensi, which people translated as Teutoburg Forest. But no one knew where this was. There was a place called the Teutoburg Forest in Germany today, but that was a label slapped on it centuries later because they thought it might have been the forest. We don't know. Historians have debated the exact location of this battle for centuries. There were long-running scholarly arguments over different theories, one of history's most important battles, and we had no idea where it happened. Until a few decades ago. In 1987, Major Tony Clun, a British Army officer of the Royal Tank Regiment, was doing some amateur metal detecting near the German village of Kalkreisa. This was one of the sites that historians thought might be the site of the battle. Klun was at the base of a large wooded hill called the Kalkreiseberg, which sloped down to a large bog, the Great Moor, like a big wetland, when his metal detector picked up some coins. A lot of coins. But more importantly, Klun found some smooth leaden balls, ammunition for Roman sling bolts, catapult ammunition. The ammunition plus the coins, that was the tell. After almost a thousand years, Major Klun had found the battlefield of the Teutoburg Forest. And now something else finally made sense. Tacitus's reference to the Saltu Teutoburgensi could also be translated as Teutoburg Pass, the narrow strip of land between the rocky forested Kalkreiseberg to the south and the boggy marshlands of the Great Moor to the north. This narrow strip of sandy beachland this might have been the Teutoburg Pass, not the Teutoburg Forest. This was where Varus' legions died. Archaeological digs began almost immediately, and they confirmed this was the site of the battle, and they are still ongoing today. 
and the discoveries at Calchrysa have re rewritten the entire narrative of this battle. Like, a lot of the Cassius Dio story had to be thrown out, it was debunked. I'm telling you this just so you know. Lots of older descriptions of this battle you'll find in older books don't have this new information. They're obsolete. It might help to think of ancient history like trying to solve a crime. The written records are important. They can tell us about motivation and personality and figures and events. They're like eyewitness accounts. Problem is, they're usually told through a game of telephone. It's hard to know which parts of the narrative to take at face value. Some writers are more reliable than others, but usually the ones who are unreliable give us all the juicy fun details. But archaeology, the scene of the crime, can confirm or refute parts of that narrative. So with the written sources and the archaeology together, we can find the real story of the Teutoburg Forest, what Germans call the Verusschlacht, the Verus Battle. So with all this in mind, what follows is my best attempt to reconstruct this battle based on the archaeology, on the written sources, and a healthy bit of interpretation. 9 AD had been a successful year for Publius Quinctilius Verus. He had spent the summer holding court, setting up government, collecting taxes, and leading his army through Germania. It had been quiet. The locals were all pacified, the leaders paid tribute, Roman armies marched through the territory freely. It had just been a boring but successful year, and Varus had one person to thank above all others. Arminius, a loyal Roman subject of German origin, had been his right-hand man, his close comrade, his liaison and cultural advisor on all things Germania. Varus was probably grateful to have such a capable advisor by his side. By early September 9 AD, Varus's legions were packing up their camp near the Weser River, getting ready to march back to the Rhine for the winter. Varus had the 17th, 18th, and 19th legions under his command, accounting for detachments and rear area troops that were probably back at the Rhine, they numbered around 17 to 18,000 combat soldiers. Following them were around 2 to 3,000 camp followers, mostly merchants or Roman bureaucrats, but also including the families of some soldiers, women and children. But even as Varus was getting ready to pack up and leave, an old Cherusky noble named Segestes came to his headquarters and was like, listen, Arminius and the other Germans are planning something. They're working behind your back. You need to lock him up right now. Varus didn't believe him. Arminius was a friend, a classically educated Roman citizen, a legionary veteran whose brother Flavus was serving under Tiberius in Illyria as they spoke. Varus had no reason not to trust Arminius and definitely trusted him more than Segestes. The older man had a grudge against Arminius, who had married his daughter Thusnelda, Segestes' daughter, against her father's wishes. Varus didn't want to get dragged into some interpersonal dispute and refused to listen to any accusations of treason against Arminius. Like, if there's one German I trust, it's Arminius. And lots of historians will say that Varus was wrong not to listen to this advice. We know he was wrong objectively, but hindsight is 2020. From where Varus stood, Arminius was completely trustworthy and had given him no reason to think otherwise. The real failure here was something much bigger. All the Romans, Varus and his superiors all the way up to Augustus, fundamentally misunderstood the situation in Germania. They mistook the Germans being quiet for the Germans being subdued. They mistook alliances they had extracted at sword point for genuine friendship. And they mistook marching armies through a province for controlling that province. 
They didn't even dream that the tribes might still hold resentment against the Romans, might be waiting for their opportunity, and especially not that they might work together against their common enemy. Rome was so confident that the tribes were divided and conquered, they didn't even dream of this. After all, these were dumb barbarians, not smart, civilized people. They would never be capable of something like that. Despite all evidence to the contrary over in Pannonia at that exact moment. But just as Varus was getting ready to march back to the Rhine, Arminius brought him some news. One of the restive German tribes, probably the Angrivari, were in a revolt to the west. Like, this happened occasionally, some of the German, when the German tribes got antsy, got rebellious, and the Romans had crushed all these with very little effort. So Arminius said, Hey boss, might be a good idea if we on our way back to the Rhine, right? We just made a quick detour and dealt with this uprising. And Varus was like, yeah, it sounds pretty good. Uh, you know the way? Arminius said, oh, definitely, boss. I know exactly the path you should take. It goes through this place called the Teutoburg Pass. Severus told his men there was a change of plans. Looks like we'll see some combat this year after all, boys. The younger legionaries probably got excited. Loot, glory, promotion. And the old legionaries probably rolled their eyes. They were on their way to retirement, and their pensions were worth way more than any loot they'd find in primitive Germania. So on September 7th, 9 AD, the Romans moved out. They must have formed an impressive sight, a column around eight miles long, hundreds of armored men clanking down the path, marching six abreast. Scouts and engineers moved ahead, clearing the road for the heavy vehicles coming behind them. After all, Romans' roads hadn't been built yet. This was Germania. They were basically marching down a dirt path through the woods. There were the siege engines like catapults and ballistas, followed by the civilians and the baggage train, and finally the rear guard. And at the head of the column rode Arminius, the Romanized German, the point man, showing them the way. The column was not marching in combat order. This was a routine march through friendly territory. Or so they thought. When the legions stopped for the night, Arminius told Varus that he was going to go right ahead and summon Rome's German allies so they could help them against the uprising. Varus was like, eh, actually, that's a pretty good idea. Go get him, bud. Maybe he slapped the younger man on the back and praised him for his initiative. Arminius left the Roman camp with his Cherusci auxiliaries, riding off into the darkness of the forest. And this is when I wish we could hear this story from the Germanic side. What was Arminius thinking at the decisive moment of his life? Did he look back, hear the talking and the laughing of his erstwhile comrades in their camp? Did he feel any sort of regret? Any guilt? We don't know. We just know what he did. When Arminius left Varus's camp that night, he rendezvoused with local tribal leaders from his native Cheruski, as well as the Bructeri and the Salty. This had all been planned months in advance. All across Germania, even as the Romans sat in their camp, the tribes were rising, attacking and overrunning local Roman outposts. Arminius had planned and orchestrated the German uprising, the one he had told Varus about, in order to persuade the Roman commander to change his line of march towards the Teutoburg Pass. How did Arminius persuade the Germans? It can't have been easy. They probably didn't trust him very much. He was very Romanized. And they must have remembered the raw killing power of the legions, the steel of the organized human lawnmower. So Arminius had to pitch this plan. Like, I know you guys don't trust me that much. I've been away from Germany, Germania a long time. But listen, yes, you're right. Rome is big. 
Augustus is mighty. The legions are tough, dangerous opponents. I know this. I fought with them. I lived with them. But they are not invincible. I know the Roman army inside and out. I know my enemy. We have to hit them where they're weak. We have to hit them when they're tired. We have to trap them in rough terrain where they can't deploy their siege engines, where their infantry can't get into formation. Don't attack the man on the horse, attack the horse. Don't hit them from the front, hit them from the side. Don't stand and fight. Come in, throw a spear, run out. Don't give them a chance to reorganize and reform. They are the mightiest army on earth, yes, but they're in our country, our forest, and they're ours. Rome had forced the barbarian versus civilized dichotomy onto a whole range of people all across Europe, but here was a civilized barbarian, a fusion, who had taken the knowledge the civilized world had given him and was about to use it against them. Because these barbarians could learn, they could adapt, they could change the rules and fight the battle on their terms. Rome was blind to this possibility, as so many other civilized powers would be blind down to the present day. It was hubris, plain and simple, and Arminius was their nemesis. On September 8th, Varus and the legions resumed their march into the deep, dark forest. The sky darkened, and soon rain and wind were lashing the column. The forest grew thicker and more rugged with every mile. The heavily armored infantry bogged down in the mud, and wagons had to be manhandled over felled trees and large stones. As the march slowed and stopped and then started again, the slinky effect began to take place, and the column grew more strung out, with some units widely separated from others. And that was when Arminius hit them. Thousands of Germans descended on the legions from out of the dark woods, showering the invaders with spears before disappearing again into the blackness. These were hit-and-run strikes that lasted only a few minutes, but still caused absolute chaos. Arminius knew Roman tactics, so he concentrated his forces to hit the weak points of the column. He told the Germans to aim for the Roman horses, who panicked and ran wild, knocking men over and causing chaos. Legionaries slipped and fell down in the mucus, trying to see through the downpour, as spear after spear rained into them. Under normal circumstances, the army would be deployed in tight ranks, ready for a fight, with their archers behind them and their siege engines loaded and ready to go. But the path was too narrow, the trees were too thick, there was no room to deploy. Civilian wagons were intermixed with the infantry units, causing even more havoc, as civilians fled and women screamed and babies cried. Surprisingly, in the midst of all this chaos, Varus kept his cool. He ordered the column to halt, build a new camp, and wait out the rain. He realized that they were in serious danger, so he sent his messengers to try and find the guy he could trust, Arminius. But when no word came from Arminius, or the party sent to find him, when it became clear that the whole German countryside had risen up against the Romans, Varus would have realized that he had been betrayed. He would have given orders to march the next day, as well as burn the wagon train. It would only slow them down. They had to cut their way out. Come hell, high water, or barbarians. And without local guides, without any way of knowing which way they were going, because all the Germans had deserted, they had no choice but the path Arminius had shown them. The army set out again on September 10th, leaving most of their heavy equipment behind, venturing deeper and deeper into the dark forest. 
The Germans kept hitting them from every angle. War cries echoed off the trees, spears whistling in from the gloom. The Germans boiling out of the woods, stabbing and screaming, and then vanishing again. Men watched in horror as their comrades were impaled by flying spears, or pierced through the eyes by arrows. The Germans felled trees in the path of the Roman march. The legionaries had to huddle together in defensive formations, holding off their pursuers, the civilians in the middle, as the engineers cleared the path. Varus decided to keep marching through the night, knowing that the Germans were closing in, and time was not on his side. They had to escape. They had to break out into open ground, where maybe they could fight the Germans on equal terms. So in the pre-dawn hours of September 11th, 9 AD, the legions came to the place that Tacitus would call the Saltu Tutobergensi, the Tudeberg Forest or the Tudeberg Pass. The steep, rocky Kalkreiseberg lay to the south. Massive, misty wetlands lay to the north. In between them was a sandy bank only about 200 meters wide. And with the recent rain, it would have been like quicksand. It was the perfect ambush site. And Arminius, who had led the Romans here, who had planned the final battle to take place here all along, had prepared the battlefield. He had ordered the Germans to build earthen ramparts all along the side of the hill to fence the Romans in and channel them into the kill zone and he had barricaded the path forward to prevent their escape. We know Arminius built these walls because archaeologists have found their remnants. Here, where Tony Clun waved his metal detector 2,000 years later, was where Varus's legions died. Demoralized, exhausted, and terrified, the trapped Romans still put up a hell of a fight. Varus ordered them to try and scale the earthen walls and drive the Germans back. One of the walls collapsed under the weight, burying several legionaries alive, preserving their bones for archaeologists to find in the 1990s. Other finds at this site include Roman swords, German spearheads, bits of helmets and boots and chainmail, a massive ceremonial face mask that is like on all the pamphlets and brochures and all the books about this battle, and lots of gold coins, some with Varus's name on them which helped to date the battlefield. There are hairpins and jewelry, confirming that women died here too. One of the chainmail components we found at this battlefield is inscribed with the name Marcus Aeus, Cohort 1, Century of Fabricus. Its owner, his battalion, his company, and the name of his first sergeant. Just like in the modern U.S. military, Roman legionaries labeled their, their equipment. That CIF turn-in is a nightmare. <laughs> the Romans were like fish in a barrel. Varus's second-in-command, Pneumonius Valla, tried to escape with his cavalry and leave the infantry to die. But the Germans had cavalry of their own, and they ran Valla down and killed him and his entire contingent. Seeing the Roman column falling apart, Arminius ordered the Germans to close in. They charged with captured Roman gladius or spear or the long German swords, tearing into the trapped, exhausted legionaries. They cut them down in droves, stabbing them into the mud or drowning them in the swamp. The women, children, and civilians were either slaughtered or taken captive. As for Varus, some interpretations, even modern ones, have him behaving like a coward or like a weakling. Negative. Publius Quinctilius Varus died heroically, fighting to the end before finally committing his suicide, impaling himself on his sword like a true Roman soldier. The three Roman legions, the 17th, 18th, and 19th, were virtually annihilated. Very few escaped. Some did. We know some did. 
These survivors told later Roman historians the details of the disaster in the Tudorberg Forest, the Verusschlacht. The Germans had certain ritual obligations to perform after the end of the battle. They had taken around 1,500 Roman prisoners. Most of them would be kept as slaves, some would be freed 40 years later by a Roman expedition, but some would have to be offered to the gods. And the Germanic gods liked variety in their human sacrifices. Like, they've been around for a while. Give me something I haven't seen before. The Roman officers and centurions would have been sacrificed. They might have had their throats slit over a stone altar, one by one, or over the boggy marsh to mix foreign blood with the native water, an offering to the gods. Others would be hanged as the pagan priest intoned prayers to Wotan and Thor and Tyr. Some legionaries were beheaded, with the severed heads nailed to trees to decorate the sacred site of victory. The Romans came to fear the Germanic priests when they learned of these rites. Bad things happened to civilized people who ventured into the barbarian woods. Having consecrated the temple of their victory, recovered their own casualties and looted the site of anything valuable, the Germans would have stood in awe of what they had accomplished. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest was over, and the Germans had won a crushing victory. It sounds like even Arminius was surprised at the scale of his triumph. Three legions, the 17th, 18th, and 19th, were wiped out of the Roman order of battle. And this was only the centerpiece of Arminius' grand strategy. All across Germania, the tribes overwhelmed almost every Roman garrison east of the Rhine. Only one Roman fort survived. This was Aliso. It sounds like this fort was alerted when a few of Varus' survivors came streaming in. Led by a competent officer named Lucius Cadicius, Aliso held out for weeks before the Romans managed to cut their way back to the Rhine. They were the only organized survivors of one of history's greatest military disasters. The destruction of Varus and his legions was a devastating shock to the Roman Empire. It was a psychological hammer blow, one of the greatest defeats in their history. Rome had suffered worse defeats before, most famously Cannae, Carhae, and Arausio, but those had been in the old days, back when Rome was still up and coming. This was Rome at the height of its power, its majesty, and its authority, and it had come at the hands of the barbarians, people who weren't supposed to be capable of something like this. Rome had been preparing to celebrate a triumph to commemorate Tiberius' victory over the Pannonian Revolt. But the news from Germania threw the city into panic. Massive reinforcements were ordered to the Rhine. Germans of any kind were exiled from the city, and the survivors of the three legions were forbidden to return to Italy for the rest of their lives so they couldn't spread the panic of defeat. Augustus struck the numbers of the three legions, the 17th, 18th, and 19th, from the Roman order of battle. No legion would ever bear these numbers again. It's really hard to grasp the shock the Romans felt at this defeat. It was like a bolt of black lightning on a clear blue day. The aura of Roman invincibility that Augustus had built up and cultivated, the idea of glory and triumph and inevitable victory, was shattered in an instant. And the old fear of the Celt, the Gaul, the Barbarian bubbled back up. The icy, shrieking fear of the savage people of the North. And no one was more shocked than Augustus himself. 
He had been the head honcho of the Roman Empire for 40 years. In all that time, his borders had only expanded. His armies had marched from glory to glory. It was the first real defeat he had suffered in his life. The Roman historian Suetonius describes Augustus growing his hair and beard long, almost breaking down in his devastation. He dismissed his personal bodyguard, which was mostly German, for fear of his life. But most of all, most famously, According to Suetonius, Augustus stood beating his head against the walls of his palace, shouting over and over, Quintilius Varus, give me back my legions! Yep, give me back my legions. That's the famous quote from this event. Sorry you had to wait this long for the title drop, but I had to build that anticipation. The defeat could not go unanswered. Arminius had to be punished. The Germans had to be cowed. And most importantly, the eagle standards of the three legions would have to be recovered. But to do that, the Romans would have to go back across the Rhine, back into the cold, dark forests where the barbarians awaited them. Rome was not done with Germania yet. Rome's immediate reaction to the Claudes Veriana, the Varian disaster, was panic and then massive reinforcements. Augustus, as usual, turned to his family. His stepson Tiberius went to assume Varus's vacant command along the Rhine frontier. The Romans were worried that Arminius might try to cross the Rhine and invade Gaul, maybe even move towards Italy, just like the Cambrian Teutons had done about a hundred years ago. Augustus eventually deployed eight legions, a third of the Roman army, on the Rhine. And this time, no one was complacent. None of these guys wanted their heads nailed to oak trees. Seriously, the Romans went bonkers. It was like they were terrified that the whole empire might start falling apart, like this could be a chain reaction. But no, no, this was an overreaction. Even if Arminius had the ability to cross the Rhine, he couldn't persuade the Germans to follow him. He had shown amazing leadership in getting multiple tribes to accept him as their joint war leader. But with the immediate threat removed, the alliance started to fracture. The independent-minded Germans were not going to bow to Arminius' authority for long. And this is a very common pattern in anti-imperialist revolts. After the first big victory, the old patterns of ethnic division and intertribal conflict start to reassert themselves. Like, it was only the pressure of outside forces keeping them unified in the first place. Well, boys, we got rid of the Romans. No need for the alliance anymore. Arminius was like, no, wait, the Romans are going to come back. He kept the tribes together, but he couldn't get them to cross the Rhine. Arminius did try to ally with Maribagius, the king of the Marcomanni, so maybe they could join together against Rome. He sent Maribagius a fun little care package, the severed head of Publius Quinctilius Verus. Maribagius was like, man, this is the third severed head I got for Christmas this year. Still got to write the thank you card for the last one. Joke. That, there's no such thing as Christmas yet. Maribagius sent the head along to the Romans, who ensured that Varus' family got it and they were able to bury at least some of his remains. 
But there's a lesson here. Maribajawas saw Arminius as just as much of a threat as the Romans. He was trying to play them off against each other. So German unity was proving difficult to sustain over the long term. Arminius did his best, but it seems like a lot of Germans still didn't really trust him. He had been too German to stay loyal to Rome, but he seemed too Roman for many Germans. But he was right. The Romans were coming back. Tiberius secured the frontier and even launched a few raids into German territory, but he had much bigger things to worry about. The Emperor Augustus was in the last few years of his life, and Tiberius needed to go back to Rome for the transfer of power. Augustus Caesar, one of the most brilliant, powerful, and ruthless leaders in world history, died five years after the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest in AD 14. He had forged the Roman Empire and ruled it for 44 years. His reign was almost universally successful, with the one exception of the disaster in Germania. His stepson became the Emperor Tiberius, and Tiberius was going to handle the empire's unfinished business, and that meant Germania. The new commander on the Rhine was the new emperor's nephew, the 27-year-old Germanicus. If you remember from earlier in the episode, Nero Claudius Drusus, Augustus's stepson, who we call Drusus, Tiberius's brother, had been the first Roman commander in Germania before he died in an accident, and he received the posthumous title Germanicus. And Drusus's son inherited his father's entire name, Nero Claudius Drusus Germanicus, who his historians just call him Germanicus, because Roman naming conventions are really confusing and not helpful, because the son often has the exact same name as his father, so historians tend to emphasize different names just to keep things clear. So Drusus was the dad, Germanicus was the son. Germanicus was young, handsome, very popular with his troops, widely assumed to be next in line for the throne. He was crazy popular in the empire, like he reminds me of Princess Diana. Germanicus faced his first big leadership challenge in 14 AD, when the Rhine legions mutinied against the new imperial regime. This was a warning sign for the long-term future of the empire. Just because the legions accepted the last boss didn't mean they would accept the new boss. Germanicus managed to suppress the mutiny, earning him the loyalty of the troops and the suspicion of Tiberius. There were rumors that the legions had planned to declare Germanicus the new emperor in Tiberius's place, so the uncle was a little bit worried about his nephew's popularity. So Tiberius decided to keep the Rhine legions and Germanicus busy. They were ordered to avenge Varus's defeat, recover the lost eagles, and put the fear of Caesar back into the Germans. And most of all, defeat the traitor Arminius. Germanicus launched three major expeditions into Germania from 14 to 16 AD. 14 AD was relatively small scale. The legions busted up the Marci tribe, which had been one of the side players in Arminius's coalition. The Romans were brutal in their vengeance against the Marci, slaughtering the villages and devastating their lands. The legions recovered at least one of the lost eagles during this campaign, though we don't know which one. Then there was 15 AD. The Cherusci noble Segestes, who if you'll remember tried to warn Varus about Arminius' treachery, was under siege by Arminius' forces, and he asked the Romans for help. Germanicus led a two-pronged attack that devastated much of western Germania. The Romans were able to rescue Segestes from Arminius' men, and also captured his daughter, Arminius' pregnant wife Dosnelda. 
Germanicus failed to bring Arminius into a decisive battle, though he did recover the eagle of the 19th legion. After a series of indecisive engagements, the Romans headed back to the Rhine, but Germanicus took a detour to visit the site of the Teutoburg disaster. It was the aftermath of a nightmare. The emperor's nephew walked the battlefield, looking at the rusted armor and bleached bones, bones and just the wreckage of Varus's legions. Survivors of the disaster were there with him and they guided him like, look, this is where they hit us the first time. This is where we made camp. This is where they trapped us. This is where Varus died. Germanicus took the time to bury what was left of the Roman dead. This was in violation of Roman sacred laws, since Germanicus was a member of the Roman priesthood and wasn't supposed to be so close to human remains. But his soldiers loved him for this act. He wasn't just showing that Rome would avenge its defeats, but that the empire would do right by their dead. But the legacy of the disaster still taunted and terrified the Romans. Like, it still just... It was living rent-free in the back of their head, the memory of what had happened to Varus and his legions. Sometime in 15 AD, Arminius ambushed part of the Roman army in a rancid, marshy area Tacitus calls the Pontus Longi, the Long Causeways. Like, some dead marshes, Lord of the Rings-looking stuff. Once again, Arminius caught the Romans in poor terrain, and once again they had to fight a desperate struggle before they could cut their way out. It was a close call that seemed way too familiar. All that old dread from the barbarian menace ran down Roman backs and chilled their blood. Tacitus describes one of Germanicus's generals having a nightmare during the Battle of the Pontus Longi. The general's night was disturbed by a sinister and alarming dream, for he imagined that he saw Quintilius Varus risen, blood bedraggled from the marsh, and heard him calling. Like, doesn't that haunt you at least a little bit? Imagine how much it haunted the Romans. This was the psychological damage that the Varian disaster had done to the legions. The, the horror, the slaughter, the darkness of the forest. And now we have dreams of spooky zombie Varus. Your slaughtered predecessor, the literal incarnation of your worst nightmare, calling out to you from the swamp. Oof. Germanicus launched his last campaign in 16 AD. And this time he finally forced Arminius into a decisive battle. It sounds like this wasn't Arminius' idea, he wanted to keep using the tactics they'd been using, these worked. But other Germanic leaders believed them to be cowardly. They wanted a stand-up battle against the Romans. Arminius was like, guys, that's exactly what they want, that's the worst possible way to do it. Once again, the debate between conventional or guerrilla war that we see a lot in this podcast. But Arminius' position among the tribes was still very temporary, elective. He wasn't strong enough in his personal authority to tell them no. So Arminius, against his better judgment, agreed to a fight on the Vesor River. There's an interesting little incident that happened before this battle. One of the Roman soldiers in this battle was Arminius's brother, Flavus, who had stayed loyal to Rome. The two siblings apparently had a shouting match across the river before the battle. Tacitus describes this conversation as a demonstration of how different Germans viewed the Roman Empire and Roman imperialism. Flavus insisted on Roman greatness, the power of the emperor, the mercy always waiting for him who submitted himself. His brother Arminius urged the sacred call of their country, their ancestral liberty, the gods of their German hearths, and their mother who prayed with himself that he would not choose the title of renegade and traitor to his kindred. 
Can you tell Tacitus has a lot of sympathy for the Germans? The Vaser was the kind of battle the legions had been designed for, where their tight heavy infantry formations could do their bloody disciplined work, siege engines could rain flaming missiles, and armored cavalry could run their enemies down. Arminius's army was defeated. They were scattered and many Germans were killed, though Arminius himself escaped. Like, guys, I told you it was a bad idea. But the battle hadn't been decisive. The Germans were still out there and they were still dangerous. Later that year, Arminius ambushed Germanicus's army again, and they barely escaped again. Back to the old tactics. You could beat the Germans in an open battle, but you couldn't destroy them. They could always go back to the forest. Germanicus celebrated his glorious victories back in Rome with a triumph. He presented Thusnelda and her newborn child, Arminius's son, as evidence of this glorious victory. Notably missing was Arminius himself, who was still at large. Thusnelda and her son, Thumilicus, were kept in gentle captivity in Roman territory at Ravenna, Italy. But after this, Emperor Tiberius called a halt to any further campaigns in Germania. The Romans had beaten the Germans up a bit, recovered two out of three eagles, and captured Arminius's family. Good enough for government work. Plus, Germanicus was becoming dangerously popular. He was ordered back to Rome, and a few years later, Germanicus died under very mysterious circumstances. Some rumored that he was poisoned by Tiberius. This caused a huge outpouring of grief across the Roman Empire, which is one of the reasons I compare Germanicus so much to Princess Diana. Like, this was the, you know, the prince who was promised, who was going to be the greatest Roman emperor, and then he died young without ever assuming the throne. He might have been a really good emperor. I guess we'll never know. But, the but after this, the reconquest of Germania was put on hold, as it turned out, forever. There is a supposed event where Augustus, on his deathbed, still shaken by the events of the Tudorburg Forest, forced Tiberius to promise him that he would never expand the borders of the empire again. Probably not. Tiberius's decision to call off the campaigns in Germania was a strategic decision with a lot of sense behind it. Rome had spent almost 30 years trying to impose its ways on these barbarians, from 12 BC to 16 AD, 28 years. I know it's weird to count that way, we stop counting the years backwards, start counting them forward. But for all that time, the Romans had done everything they could. They had won battles, built strongholds, forged alliances, conquered territory, forced the tribes to submit over and over and over and over, and it hadn't worked. The Roman program had not succeeded, and Varus's disaster had proved it. If Germania could not be held after all that, it couldn't be held. And it wasn't worth holding. The Rhine was a perfectly defensible frontier, a, the best frontier that Roman could possibly ask for, a big freaking river that's really hard to cross. That's a great border. The land beyond was a wild forest and swampland with no resources, no cities, nothing of value. The cost in men and resources was just not worth it. So Tiberius said, we've had enough. Germania can grow, go screw itself. Let it be the graveyard of someone else's empire. The metaphorical planes were leaving the metaphorical Kabul airport. And guys, this was one of the great turning points of history. Never again would Rome try to conquer the lands beyond the Rhine. Sure, there would be punitive expeditions, raids to punish this tribe or that tribe, but the Rhine and the Danube would remain Rome's imperial frontiers, this side of the rivers is civilized. 
that site is barbarian. That is not to say the Romans never crossed over into Germania again. Several Roman emperors would lead major expeditions throughout the history of the empire. Marcus Aurelius in particular led several large invasions, one of which is depicted at the beginning of the movie Gladiator. So that's that, that's that war against the Germans. That's like a century and a half later under the emperor Marcus Aurelius. That's, that movie isn't this battle. But the Romans never stayed. Those forests were way too dangerous. You can never truly relax in the silent gaze of their darkness. Not after Varus. Instead, the Romans fell back in that oldest of imperial tricks, divide and conquer. Rome sponsored some tribes to fight other tribes, and with the threat of conquest gone, the Germans were always happy to get a leg up on their opponents. If a Roman diplomat arrives in your backyard and says, I'll give you a crap ton of gold to go fight those guys who happen to be your mortal enemies, anyway, it's a win-win. This would be Roman policy for like the next 400 years. Keep the Germans fighting each other, secure the Rhine, and don't go back into the forest. It would work until the Germans invaded across the Rhine and destroyed the Western Roman Empire, but that's way in the future. We're talking like 400s AD before that happens. It is symbolic that Rome recovered the last of the lost legionary eagles in the year 41 AD through diplomacy, not war. Of course, Rome was able to do this because the German alliance fell apart. Arminius had rallied the Germans against an imminent threat, but without that threat, it was back to business as usual, the Germans fighting each other. Arminius turned his forces against his only other rival for power within Germany, Maraboduus of the Marcomanni. Maraboduus ended up fleeing to Roman borders, where they set him up with like a nice pension in Ravenna, Italy. You have to wonder if he ran into like the Snelda at the fruit market or something. But the growing power of Arminius disturbed many Germans, including his own tribe, the Cherusci. They had looked to him for leadership against the outside threat, but now that the outside threat was gone, he didn't seem to want to give up power. He was starting to act like he would always be in charge. He was trying to impose artificial unity on the Germans, and they weren't on board with this. And again, we have to read between the lines here. Tacitus says Arminius was trying to become a king, and this raised the ire of the Germans. Is this true? Was he just power-hungry? Or was he trying to build a permanent alliance to stop the Romans? Or was he trying to imitate the Romans, to bring the knowledge and skills he had learned in Rome to centralize and make the Germans rich and powerful as well? Was Arminius trying to bring civilization to his people, to combine his civilized knowledge with his barbarian heritage? But he was caught between two worlds. He was too German for the Romans and too Roman for the Germans. In 21 AD, Arminius was assassinated, poisoned by his opponents in the Cherusci tribe. Just like Julius Caesar, killed by his countrymen, who suspected him of wanting to become a king. Tacitus says this about Arminius. Undoubtedly the liberator of Germania. A man who, not in its infancy as captains and kings before him, but in the high noon of its sovereignty, threw down the challenge to the Roman nation, in battle with ambiguous results, in war without defeat. He receives less than his due from us of Rome. The Roman failure to conquer Germania was one of the great turning points of world history, and the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest was one of history's most decisive battles. It was the high-water mark of Rome's empire in mainland Europe. I'm not sure if the Romans ever could have held the region even if they'd kept trying. 
There just wasn't enough infrastructure, no cities, the terrain was terrible. It was so far from the heartland, it was just a bridge too far. And of course the barbarians in their dark, trackless forests, always waiting across the Rhine. But the Romans did not, and that was one of the turning points of human history. The Battle of the Teutoburg Forest had long-term consequences for the history of Europe. The Rhine and the Danube divided a Europe that was heavily influenced by Latin culture and a Europe that wasn't, between countries that spoke Romance languages derived from Latin and those that spoke Germanic languages, including Britain, where the Anglo-Saxons carried Germanic culture after the fall of the empire, between the Roman pantheon and later Christianity on one side and the Germanic pagans on the other, later on between Catholicism and Protestantism. Heck, Favorite beverages. West of the Rhine is traditional wine country. East of the Rhine is traditional beer country. And a subtle difference that only emerges in folk tales and stories and songs and collective identities. Whether you view the forest as a holy place of sanctuary and refuge and healing, or as a place of darkness and mystery and fear. Whether you're the civilized people looking in, or the barbarians looking out. And along that Rhine and Danube border, where the legions stood watch for centuries, cultures blended and transformed, collided and merged, a border that might have been somewhere else, or not existed at all, if not for the Varian disaster. But now that we've seen what the battle decided, let's see what it's meant. And this is a good lesson on how the past is interpreted, reflected, and often twisted out of shape to meet the demands of the present. Why history is always political. The story of Arminius and Varus and the lost legions of Augustus was very little known until the Renaissance, when scholars found the only surviving copy of Tacitus's Germania in 1425, followed by the publication of Tacitus's Annals and Velius Paterculus's account of the battle. For the late medieval Germans, the discovery of ancient Germania was a monumental awakening, an entire chapter of their history that they had no idea about until just now. They were just learning. Like, medieval people knew none of what I just told you before they rediscovered Tacitus. Germany had been a country without a past. The story of Arminius and Varus and the German tribesmen who defeated the Roman legions became one of the great stories of German mythology, and it re-emerged at the same time as the invention of the printing press. A perfect coincidence, a perfect storm for a cultural zeitgeist. Soon every German sees on the story of Arminius and what they thought it represented. When Martin Luther made his break with the Catholic Church, he referenced and co-opted Arminius as a champion for the Protestant cause, leading another German rebellion against Rome. Luther linked Arminius with the modern German name Hermann, so a lot of German historians will call this guy Hermann, although they don't seem to actually be linguistically related. The Teutoburg battle and its figures resonated throughout German culture for centuries, Arminius and Varus, Segestes and Thusnelda, Germanicus and Maraboduus lived on in poetry and paintings and novels and stage plays and operas, often with major changes to the history. Like, do not try to learn history through these operas. There's one that's like, there's like a love triangle between Varus and Arminius and Thusnelda, which came from nowhere. The characters and what they represented also changed with the times. Was Arminius noble, a Christ-like sacrificial figure? Was he angry and vengeful? Was he rational and clever? 
Was he wearing a horned helmet singing a duet with Thusnelda, also wearing a horned helmet, on a Vienna opera stage? Depends on the century. And in these novels and paintings and plays, you will find the forest, representing the spiritual and the sacred, the beating heart of Germania. In the late 19th century, Arminius became an icon of German nationalism. This was a period when many European countries found inspiration in their ancient past, especially in rebels against Rome. Like, see, there's been a French nation, a British nation, a German nation, way back in the ancient times. The French had the Gallic king, Vercingetorix. The Portuguese had Ariovistus. The Africans had the Numidian king, Jugurtha. And the British had the Celtic queen, Boudicca. The German incarnation of Arminius transformed into the patriotic standard-bearer of the newly reformed, newly united German nation. Even if Arminius would not have called himself a German, after all, that was the word the Romans used. But just as in so many other victims of empire, the term that the outsiders imposed, the term the Romans called this land, became the new name of the country. German historians were obsessed with this battle. This is when there were so many of the big debates over the location of what the Germans called the Hermannschlacht, or the Verusschlacht, the Arminius Battle of the Verus Battle. The Kaiser paid to have a massive Arminius statue erected near one possible side of the battle. Turns out, the wrong place. Then Germany lost World War I, and they twisted history even further to fit the needs of their new propaganda. Now Arminius was an uber-masculine Germanic war god bent on vengeance against his oppressors, and those oppressors were the Jews. A 1933 German novel portrays Arminius as an anti-Semite, saying they need to eradicate Rome's Jewish merchants before they eradicate the Germans. Which is, is completely invented. Like, the, the Jews never appear in the Roman sources on Germania. This is just the Nazis' weird goulash of racial ideas being imposed on the ancient past. Nazi marches bore gleaming images of the triumphant Arminius. New, the Nazi movies all had like indicators of Arminius fighting against the evil forces across the Rhine. And Hitler's parades featured stormtroopers cosplaying as Cheruski warriors. Tacitus became the history not of tribes, not of a nation, but a race. Adolf Hitler praised Arminius as the architect of German liberty. Germany wore its barbarian status proudly now in opposition to all things civilized. And suddenly, in 1945, all the cultural depictions of Arminius kind of disappear. Hmm, wonder what happened in 1945 to make German nationalist mythology less popular. Hmm, I don't know, maybe you can tell me. Now the Germans see the story of Arminius as a curiosity, an interesting tidbit, something to put on coffee mugs sold at the visitor's center near Kalkreisa. There's also a, uh, a Varus golf course nearby, which is pretty, uh, pretty tasteless, I think. But they don't view Arminius as part of a national story anymore. Arminius and his tribesmen were too associated with German militarism to be the new heroes. They could be acknowledged as subjects of interest, but not celebrated. It was no longer popular to be a barbarian. In the year 2009, the 2,000-year anniversary of the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest came and went in Germany with very little comment. Certainly no parades or festivals or anything like that. If anyone did celebrate it, they did so in private.
So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed this jaunt into ancient history. Although, as we've seen, when modern people get their hands on it, history doesn't stay ancient. The reason I ended this episode the way I did is just to demonstrate something that I think is important. History doesn't stay in the past. How people reinterpret it, portray it in media and film and literature and memes, how they relate it to the present, it matters. Especially when the way we understand it is wrong. Arminius wasn't a Nazi. He wouldn't have even understood their stupid goulash of dark romanticism and racial nitpicking. But the Nazis found a use for him in their propaganda. That's why it's important to understand history in its own time, not force it into the frame we put on it from the present. Someday they'll try to do that to us, and you guys will not be happy with the words they try to put into your mouth. But beyond that, what can we learn from the Roman invasion of Germania and the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest? One of the big things I hope you take away is how difficult history can sometimes be. Like I said, there are a lot of maybes, would-haves, might-haves in this episode, because we have like three or four textual sources for this entire series of events, and they are vague and they disagree and sometimes they're wrong. It's a freaking miracle that we know anything at all sometimes. Imagine if that final copy of Tacitus had been used as like Amazon Prime packaging or something. History is hard work, guys. Guys, I read these sources... They're not always helpful. That's why archaeology can be so important. A huge amount of this battle only comes into focus. We can only glean, like, the entire sequence of events around the Kalkreiseberg only comes from the archaeology. We have to take the digs from the 1980s into account to tell this story. We do not pay archaeologists enough. That's all I can say. Because history can teach us lessons that, for some reason, we seem to keep relearning. I compared the Roman invasions of Germania to other imperial wars, especially Afghanistan throughout this episode. I know, I compare things to Afghanistan or Iraq or Ukraine or D-Day a lot. And while that might not be best historical practice, I think it's useful. These are recent examples in living memory that are familiar to us that help us relate to the past, that help us draw lines between the ancient world and the modern day. So when I ask why the Romans failed to conquer Germania, I'm not just asking why the Romans failed to conquer Germania. The Romans were absolutely the superpower of their time. The legions were one of the greatest militaries that ever existed. The empire was a massive economic and logistics machine. Its generals and governors were, on the whole, pretty good. I'm going to go against the historical grain. Publius Quinctilius Verus was a competent commander and governor. The bigger failure, the broader failure, wasn't his. It was in Rome's insistence on putting people into either the civilized camp or the barbarian camp. We are civilized. They are barbarian. Germania is conquered. They're now civilized. They're not barbarians anymore until suddenly they are. And the psychological impact when the disaster came was astonishing. For comparison, I would to make an analogy. Imagine if sometime in like 2017... The Taliban had ambushed and wiped out three American brigade combat teams in Afghanistan. 18,000 dead, well over three times the number we lost in the whole war on terror. And imagine that the guy who orchestrated it was an Afghan who had been brought to America, educated in American universities, served in the U.S. Army, and then gone back to Afghanistan as an American contractor only to lead a revolt against America. 
it would have been a catastrophe on a psychological as well as a military level. A total refutation of American ideals and beliefs in civilization. We would have been thunderstruck. Imagine that. And then imagine, and everybody would ask themselves, how could this have happened? And there's your problem. The mistake that so many civilized powers make is perceiving their enemies in one direct, in one dimension as lesser, inferior, dumber, barbarian. Like if we just show them the light of civilization, they'll be automatically converted. I've said this before. Racism and bigotry and prejudice don't just make you bad. They make you stupid. They blind you. You see your enemies as simple savages or primitives or terrorists. And then you're shocked when you underestimate them and they prove to be much more dangerous than you imagined. Especially if they've had years to learn your ways. Especially if you think they're tame and you bring them into your system and teach them all your ways of war and you act surprised when they use what you taught them against you. This is always the fatal flaw of imperialism. By making other people like you, you create your own future enemies because you miss the fact that they are human too. They're smart, they're determined, they're resilient, they have their own thoughts and beliefs and loyalties, and your civilization isn't going to override that. And they don't want you in their country. Ask the Romans, ask the British, ask the Americans, ask the Russians what they think of the Germans, the Afghans, the Vietnamese, the Ukrainians. No matter how primitive you think they are, those people you see as barbarians will kick your ass, especially if you let yourself get arrogant and complacent and confident in your power. They will be the nemesis to your hubris. Be civilized all you like. Revel in your obvious supremacy over those ignorant, savage people who don't live in cities and don't shave and don't have air conditioning and don't even listen to podcasts. Think yourself superior all you want, but think twice before you venture into the forest. Thanks for listening today. I mentioned several movies today. I recommend Gladiator and Blair Witch Project. I don't recommend all the wrong turn movies, but the first one has Eliza Dushku in it, and she's a good actress, so have at it. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, especially if they send you a severed head in the mail, probably best to keep them on your good side. If you want to read a bunch of stuff I've written about the Roman Empire, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com, along with all my sources for this episode. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening today, and thanks for coming back to the ancient world with me. We'll be stopping by back there once in a while. Just stay tuned. And I will see you guys in two weeks' time when we move forward a thousand years to the Middle Ages. Who wants to hear about knights and castles and shipwrecks and, best of all, castration? What's not to love? See you in two weeks here on Unknown Soldiers. (laughs) 